Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Mike Martin's back on the pod. He's a senior visiting research fellow in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. He's been on the podcast many times before. We talk about war in its widest, most general sense, why humans do it, why we fight, which was the title of a previous book of his. We talk about Ukraine, how the war in Ukraine is conforming to classical sort of rules, if you like, practices of war and how it's different. And and in this episode of the podcast, we invited him back because we talked about 100 years, a century of revolution in war, how war has changed so dramatically. Just over 100 years ago, my great-grandfather went to war on the field of Lakato in France. He was riding a horse. It was the beginning of the First World War, 1914. He could see his enemy clearly. Troops engaged each other, standing next to each other, kneeling or lying prone on the ground, but firing at each other much as their forebears would have done on the field of Waterloo or, or Culloden or the Battle of Blenheim. There was artillery, but the artillery engaged the enemy at relatively close range, like cannons would have done in those previous battles. They shot at the enemy they could see with their own eyes. There were one or two aircraft buzzing in the sky above. Some dropped what my great-grandfather described almost as tin foil to show German artillery where they might want to aim. But that was reasonably rare at that point in the war. My great-grandfather was injured a few weeks later and went home to convalesce in the UK. He arrived back on the battlefield in May 1915. He's written about his astonishment. It was like no battlefield he'd ever seen. He was a professional soldier. He'd seen war all his life. And yet 1915 presented something quite new. Smashed landscape. Nothing moved during the day. If you put your head above ground during the day, you were likely to be shot. Airships in the skies above, artillery firing from huge distances behind the lines, indirect fire, the men living all day in bunkers, trenches, dugouts, huge problems with damp, with trench foot, causing more people to leave the lines than enemy action. This was a revolution in warfare, and it's continued to develop in the century and a bit that has followed. Mike and I, in this episode, we talk about those machine guns, those trenches, air power, tanks, and we get right the way through to the modern day AI, hypersonic weapons. There's a quote often misattributed to Plato. It said, only the dead have seen the end of war. And sadly, the 20th and 21st centuries, when we've made such enormous strides in every other conceivable field of human life, the evidence seems to be that war is enduring. And 
All of those enormous technological breakthroughs that I referred to have been driven by and have impacted war just as they have every other part of our lives. This is Mike Martin to talk us through a revolution in warfare. Enjoy. T-minus 10. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Mike, good to have you back on the podcast, buddy. Hi, Dan. If you're talking about the development of war in the 20th century, a century in which things change probably more than any other century in recorded history, first of all, what stays the same? You write so beautifully about the kind of purpose of war. What is it for and how, despite all the technology, does the reason for going to war and the way of winning it endure? Humans is basically the central point of the two questions that you've asked me. So the purpose of going to war is, you know, war settled geopolitical questions that we can't resolved by talking, right? So it's basically politics, but with weapons and violence. And as a result, the aim of your war is to convince your enemy to do something that they didn't want to do, right? To impose your will on them. And that's the same if you're a hunter-gatherer with three of your mates taking on another band of hunter-gatherers fighting over a bison, as it is Xi Jinping thinking about how to invade Taiwan. It's that Those psychological dynamics are exactly the same. So this thread of psychology and war is politics and war is about human beings and about imposing your will on the enemy, that's been the same. That's the nature of war, and that is the same throughout now, of course, what has changed, which I think what we're going to talk about today, is technology, which changes all the time. Obviously, there's plenty of war in the first decade and a half of the 20th century, but let's start in 14. People will be familiar with some of the extraordinary battles of 14, unimaginable casualties suffered among the French, who famously marched towards the enemy in red trousers. We've got the Battle of Le Cateau, the first British battle, the First World War. People on horseback, people fighting in daylight, sort of shoulder to shoulder, using rifles, using a bit of artillery. You can see the enemy. I think the Duke of Wellington would have recognised it. He'd have been impressed with some of the accuracy. And what happened to that battlefield? How did it change? The machine gun happens to those battlefields. We'd had machine guns in sort of the end of the 1800s, but really to see them deployed in force. And, and like many new technologies, the cavalry officers said, oh, we shouldn't have too many machine guns because, you know, the spirit of the men and all the rest of it, we want them to charge into the enemy. Very quickly, it became immediately obvious that if you have more machine guns and they're well-placed, a team of two can hold up a 1,000 of your opponents. And there's no counter to that. At that point, there weren't any other countervailing technologies to deal with that. And so more than anything else, it was not just the invention, but the ubiquitous deployment of the machine gun by both armies that created the trench systems. Because the countervailing technology at that exact point, so 1940, is just get underground. Like lie on your belly and use your bayonet to scrape away the surface and just try and get inches lower and lower and lower. And by the way, that is still the countervailing technology, right? If you look at what's happening in Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, there are two opposing trench systems there. They won't be as extensive as those in the First World War, which were you know, built up over years, so they had secondary trenches, communication trenches, all the rest of it. But actually in Bakhmut, the trench hasn't changed. It's still eight foot 
right? So a six foot person's hidden. It's still got a fire step. It'll have sandbags. It'll have a parapet. It'll have some sort of device enabling you to look over the edge of the trench. That hasn't actually changed at all. That's the interesting thing about these pictures from Ukraine. Everyone's like, oh, I thought trenches were a First World War technology. But you look at the fighting in Eastern Congo in our lifetime. You look at fighting in Sarajevo in the conflict there. People have been underground since this moment, haven't they? Absolutely. And heaven forbid were... Tunbridge Wells to come under air attack, the first thing I would be doing is either looking for a hole in the ground to get into with my family or digging one myself. That's a happy thought. In the First World War, you've also got, as well as I'm unable to fire a machine gun for 500 bullets every minute, you've got artillery is increasingly powerful, isn't it? And that's something, again, that endures, you know, the dominance of artillery on the battle. There's an old expression in the First World War, wasn't there, that the guns take ground and then humans move in to kind of hold it. Can you tell people why artillery is so dominant? Artillery can be dominant, provided you have enough guns and enough shells, because... There is really no other way to escape it apart from digging into the ground. And if you dig into the ground, that then slows you down. You know, not only men, it's really useful against supplies, right? Which you can't dig into the ground. You can't, you know, this ammunition and petrol and diesel and spare parts and, you know, all the logistics, which are utterly vital. They're very, very hard to protect from artillery. They take up huge areas of ground. Imagine a shipping container park, right? That's exactly what the logistics tail of an army looks like. (laughs) Thousands upon thousands of shipping containers. You know, artillery is not a precision weapon. It's an area weapon. And it's perfectly designed either for troops that are in the open that are not dug in or for logistics. Now, the one problem they had in the First World War, of course, was that The artillery wasn't that accurate. That's both because of manufacturing. You know, famously, the Royal Artillery is still called the drop shorts because the First World War, the amount of propellant wasn't sufficient to get it where it needed to be. But also because to get artillery where you need it to get, you A, need to be able to observe where you're landing that artillery. And then you need to be able to communicate back to the guns. And both at those times observation of remote things and communication was very, very rudimentary. So that limited somewhat the efficacy of artillery at that time. Plus everyone was dug in, right? Right. Well, Mike, you've just teed up perfectly the next kind of turn of the wheel, which is how do you then break that stalemate? If there's a muddy shell pitted field in front of you, a smashed landscape covered by artillery and machine guns, how do you get across that beaten zone? What you do is you get a tractor and you armour it and you put some tracks on it so they can go across the mud, a.k.a. you invent the tank. I mean, this is one technology, but really what it is is the beginning of all the reinvention of mobility. Previously, we used cavalry to be mobile on the battlefield. What the tank enabled us to do is in an era of artillery and machine guns and all that stuff you've listed, it enabled us to break through enemy trench systems it enabled us to ignore machine gun fire i mean the machine gun literally just bounced off and so that was the countervailing technology that suddenly opened up the battlefield again so whereas you know machine guns and artillery created a bit of a hiatus neither side was able to get over those technologies suddenly the tank and more broadly armored mobility and armored warfare suddenly opened up the battlefield again and you mentioned the artillery kind of visibility and accuracy helped by well, first of all, just artillery getting a bit better and the maths and the physics and learning about barrel wear and wind and stuff. But also 
planes up above with radios, so communication, spotting, intelligence, that side of it. So you can actually get to a point where you can call in artillery and you go left a bit, right a bit. That's perfect. You're right on target now. And the gunners can talk to people up in the air. That communications and spotting, surely very important as well. Yeah. And they had that in a very rudimentary fashion in the First World War. They used balloons. Artillery observation balloons were huge. And then the Royal Flying Corps did a bit of it. But often it would be through either dropping messages back on the guns or whatever. So throughout the 20s, certainly by the time the Second World War happened, that was a system that was working much more effectively. Okay, so we're getting across the beaten zone. We've worked out some tactics, how to counter machine guns and artillery. What are the next big breakthroughs sort of moving through to the end and beyond the end of the First World War? So I think the 20s was about the coming of air power, specifically bombing, right? Air to ground bombing. And like most technologies, I mean, we've had it recently, haven't we, with cyber. Everyone gets very excited and cyber warfare is going to solve all of our problems and we won't need infantry anymore. That was what the 20s was like with air power. And at the time, Britain was probably the predominant user of military air power. And we had at that time, you know, a fairly far flung set of possessions in the British Empire. You know, as always, arguments in London about how can we manage to manage this huge set of territories. And air power evangelists came along and said, oh, you don't need an armoured division in Iraq or Somaliland or wherever. You can actually do it via air power. And this is the way, you know, if you've got rebellious tribes or whatever, you know, using the language of the time, then we can use air power. It was actually called air policing. Needless to say, it didn't work very well because warfare is about humans. And when they really had political problems to solve, they always had to send the troops in. But the development of air power whilst not very useful against civilians, certainly changed the balance in terms of using it against opposing military forces because you could wipe out enemy formations with air power and that really changed the balance progressively through the 20s and 30s as those planes became longer range, more aerodynamic, uh, so on and so forth. And there was that great quote, uh, which is, the bomber will always get through. And so there was some sort of depression, if you like, wasn't there? There's almost nothing we can do now because someone can take off from Germany or from wherever, fly across our airspace and rain down death and destruction. And that was combined with this kind of pessimism that the urban proletariat would then smash up cities enough and the urban proletariat would rise up and sort of string up all the politicians. I mean, it was a very, very dystopian view of the future of war at that stage. I mean, that trope, actually, that if we bomb enemy civilians, they'll descend into panic and we'll just then walk into the city we see that again you know to come back to the current war in ukraine that's exactly what russia thinks is going to happen when it bombs ukrainian cities of course the opposite almost always happens which is that civilians become more defiant and they say well if you're going to bomb our cities we're definitely going to fight you people feel like their backs are against the wall bombing of civilians actually often achieves the exact opposite effect to what people intend of course it relies on this assumption that the enemy civilians are of lesser moral worth, of lesser moral character than your own troops who are sort of steely-eyed dealers of death. And that's exactly what the Russians think of the Ukrainians, that they're morally inferior. And if we bomb them, they'll just panic and fall apart. It's what Hitler thought about Londoners in the Blitz, you know, and they always get the opposite result. And Stanley Baldwin, who made the comment the bomb will always get through, British Prime Minister, he was also wrong. Funnily enough, humans develop ways to counter the bomber trying to get through, right? Yeah. And so this was the next countervailing technology. And that's, today we call it an integrated air defence system. But what it was, again, first pioneered by the Brits, 
was in the late 30s the invention of radar so you have a bunch of radar stations spread around that give you coverage and then those are linked by communications to a static air defenses so guns that are going to fire so you say all right you've got a flight of bombers coming towards you and also to fighter aircraft so those aircraft are sitting at readiness and you can scramble them very, very quickly up into the air. Communications are good enough that you can then give them a steer, go here, you'll intercept them over this area, and then you can attack them. We call that integrated air defense. But at that time, it was about getting fighter aircraft and air defence onto the enemy bombers before they got to their targets. Just as the machine gun once looked dominant and you can't imagine anything that can stand up against it, you get a situation in the Battle of Britain where the huge German formations fly over the channel, fly over the coast of Kent, and actually they are countered. The Brits are able to deploy fighter planes, the Spitfires and Hurricanes fly up, picking off these German bombers and exact a terrible price for every German raid over Britain. And so the airspace, again, like the battlefield of the First World War, it becomes contested. You see, it's amazing how human beings, like this looks arms race, isn't it? It's fascinating. Yeah. And then, you know, you have a technology that comes along and that sort of puts war into hiatus because there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to put up with it. So you end up with a trench system or you end up getting bombed or whatever. And then someone comes up with a countervailing technology and then back on. The rules of psychology come back into play and it's a game of cat and mouse and you're trying to, you know, impose your will on the enemy commander. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the revolution in warfare. More after this. Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, 
Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Think about the oft-lamented stalemate of the First World War, particularly in France and Belgium, where the front line moves very little for years on end. Imagine 20 years later, you got Hitler kind of rampaging, well, both across France and Belgium as well, but also across Russia, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles, great holes torn in front lines using aircraft and mobile artillery and tanks. Counter to that, right, what today we call manoeuvre warfare, what the Germans call blitzkrieg, you know, this idea of moving armoured formations with artillery and air support rapidly to dislocate and confuse your enemy. The only way to deal with that is to have your own combined arms force that's able to outthink your opponent, right? And the French and the Brits just didn't have that force in sufficient numbers and sufficiently trained. The French famously had the Maginot Line, right? Where they're going to sit in defences. And that's what the Russians are doing in Ukraine at the moment. We'll see how well that goes over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Russians building gigantic field defences at the moment and trying to just cling on to what they've got. But in the Second World War, interesting that Russians embraced manoeuvre warfare as well and were able to push the Germans all the way back to Berlin. One of the advantages of manoeuvre warfare, if you do it right, is you can perhaps sustain fewer casualties with attrition warfare, right? But the Russians seem to combine attrition warfare and manoeuvre warfare in one go. Although attrition is part of manoeuvre, but they were perfectly happy if they didn't have the tanks to do a right hook and dislocate the enemy. They were perfectly happy to stick 20,000 infantry soldiers with 10,000 rifles going up the middle, you know? We should talk about a little bit the war in the Pacific and a naval power. You get this extraordinary combination of aircraft and ships together, which means the era of big gun battleships dominant on the world's oceans for hundreds of years when ships basically were floating artillery platforms. That comes to an end. These battleships can fire 20 miles away or so, but with a plane on a deck of a ship, you can strike hundreds of miles. Yeah, absolutely. I guess there's two things really that come out of the Second World War. One is missile technology, which we can talk about in a minute. But then, yeah, aircraft carriers, absolutely. And for a long time during the Second World War, the war in the Pacific, probably up to really the contemporary era, aircraft carriers were seen as almost unbeatable because you could sit over the horizon and fly your fast jets. And, you know, the Americans have got whatever, they've got 10 or 12 aircraft carrier battle groups to enable them to project power in a way that can't be countered. Of course, now the counter that's coming in is hypersonic missiles, so missiles that fly at multiples of the speed of sound. And if you can get those to skim the sea, they're pretty difficult to defeat. And also drone swarms and UAVs, you know. And so rather than sending in one expensive missile to try and take out the ship, you send in 10,000 micro drones that swarm and they're networked by AI. So they've distributed processing across the swarm so that as they approach the ship, like a flock of starlings, if you like, adopt different configurations and have different bits of the swarm get targeted, the distributed processing rearranges them in the sky to escape being targeted and you only need a few of them to get through. So that makes big ships 
very vulnerable. Super excited that we just spent a good chunk of our defence budget on two enormous aircraft carriers, Mike. But as a proud fan of the Royal Navy, I'm sure that they've worked all this out and there will be ways of uh, wrapping those ships in layers of defensive technology. So aircraft carriers come out the end of the Second World War, bestriding the world's oceans. You mentioned missile technology. And so let's finish off the Second World War by talking about these two linked innovations, or certainly the Americans would eventually link them. One is the German use of ballistic missiles. The first man-made object to enter space is a V-2 rocket in the Second World War. And as the Germans are investing vast amounts of money in their rocket technology to be able to strike at targets a whole continent away, the Americans and Brits, I should say, are working on nuclear technology. Yeah, and I think I'd add a third technology there, which is space. So those three things come together. So I guess famously, the flying rockets, the V1s and the V2s, and that sort of reawakens the fear of the air because they're much more difficult to counter. And of course, the nuclear bombs over Japan, all of the German rocket scientists ended up being brought into the American space program. And when we think about the space program, we think about NASA, Apollo, landing on the moon, all of that kind of good for humanity stuff. But really, that was an outcrop of intercontinental ballistic missiles, like being able to fire nuclear bombs to land on Moscow or to land on Washington, you know, depending on who you are. And linked to that are the first satellites, really, platforms to enable the powers to track incoming ballistic missiles, right? And there's only so many routes that they can take. They needed to put satellites in specific places. So, for instance, if you're firing a missile between Russia and the US, the missile is going to go over the North Pole. It doesn't make sense to send it around the South Pole. The North Pole is the shortest route. It gives the shortest reaction time. So you need to position a few satellites there to be able to detect those incoming missiles and then decide what you're going to do. Are you going to strike back or whatever? So yeah, those three technologies. And out of all of that came all sorts of things like GPS, satellite reconnaissance, like secure global communications, all sorts of spin-offs from the combination of those three technologies. And that leads us on to what you do about rockets. As you say, there's now a hiatus. So the Soviets and the Americans developed the technology to strike each other with nuclear weapons, carried on rockets that you cannot intercept, right? Like the German V2s. Absolutely nothing you do about it. Londoners found that particular aspect of the Blitz so dispiriting because a V2 rocket, the first you knew of it was the impact itself. It's uninterceptable. And yet we have developed ways to intercept. We've managed to kind of, it's like shooting down a speeding bullet with another bullet. We have worked out ways to intercept certain kinds of rockets now, haven't we? But certainly not hypersonic ones. No, and we got to a stable position, you know, a hiatus during the Cold War where both sides had more nuclear weapons specifically on intercontinental ballistic missiles to wipe out the other side and both sides had what's called a guaranteed second strike capability so if one side launched its missiles you'd have the warning but you knew that they didn't have enough missiles to target all of your delivery systems so you would be able to launch a second strike which comes back to the psychology so the first side's never going to launch their first strike because they know that they're going to have some missiles coming back whatever happens and that created a balance and that was reinforced by arms control treaties in the 70s 80s and 90s that for instance they limited short-range missiles because short-range missiles have no warning so you could get them off and you'd have no chance to respond so they'd limited those they limited 
anti-ballistic missile shields, right? So they deliberately outlawed defences against intercontinental ballistic missiles because if everyone's vulnerable, then we're all safe, is the thinking. And so they had a series of treaties that actually reinforced this hiatus in this troika of missile, nuke and space technology. And you just mentioned hypersonic missiles, and there are a few other technologies as well. But what hypersonic missiles are is they can travel at, say, 20 times the speed of sound, which means you can get from Moscow to Washington in 15 minutes. That then upsets the balance because you don't have time to detect it, respond, work out what to do, you know, all the rest of it. There's no decision-making time. And so that suddenly makes nuclear dynamics much, much, much more unstable. Actually, that was a hiatus in nuclear affairs, in missile technology. That was a hiatus that we wanted. That has largely kept the world free of nuclear war since 1945. And the invention of these new technologies or the bringing of anti-ballistic missile systems or hypersonic missiles has suddenly upset that balance. And all of a sudden, that becomes a much more unstable system. Happy news. Always the bringer of optimism, Martin. The internet happened, didn't it, in the late 20th century? How has the digital space changed war? Oh, wow. That's... that's pre- <laughs> Join us next week for an entirely new podcast. <laughs> yeah. that's. I mean, it's pretty hard to say, isn't it? Because it's still changing. I can't look back on the invention of the internet and say that's what's happened. We're right in the thick of it now. I mean, what the internet's done is it's created a global communications medium. And what that's then done is it's collapsed borders and it's disempowered the nation state. And previously, the nation state was the building block of our international system. And obviously states made war against each other and so on and so forth. And this is really the key question that world politicians need to answer over the next, say, 20 years is what is the relationship between online and offline? Do we have a borderless online world? If it's global in that case, then why do we have borders in the physical world? Alternatively, well, we've got borders in the physical world, so do we want to have borders in the online world? Previously, if you look at what communications technologies have done, so let's say the invention of writing or the printing press or the telephone, is they've collapsed borders and they have forced us, us being humans, to come up with new ideas to govern ourselves. Suddenly, you know, if you've got writing and you can administer a territory that's 100 times the size of what you could administer before, suddenly you've got to think of new ways of governing people. And this is where these sort of universal ideas about democracy or socialism or whatever, all of these came out of, say, the Industrial Revolution, right? Because suddenly people were moving cities and connected with each other. And we had to actually, they weren't just going to sit there and be told what to do. So with the great franchise movement in the 1800s in Britain came out of that urbanisation, which in turn was brought about by technologies and things like the Telegraph and all the rest of it. So we are at a point of change and we haven't come up with the new system for governing ourselves. What does that mean for war? No idea. I think a more important technology that we should be thinking about is AI, actually, when it comes to war, because... We've spoken throughout this podcast about this thread of psychology that runs through war. So war is the same if you're a hunter-gatherer as if you're Xi Jinping, because it's about imposing your will on the opponent and it's attack and there's deceit and bluff and ruse. And these things are all the same, whether you're throwing rocks or throwing intercontinental ballistic missiles. But AI, for once, means that some of the decisions about war might actually be taken by an artificial brain rather than a real brain. And artificial brains might be fantastic and brilliant and fast and all the rest of it, but they're not wired in the same way that brains that have evolved on the African savannah 50,000 years ago are wired. And so they think in a different way. 
And what that means is that these dynamics, this thread of psychology that runs through war, if you have artificial systems making decisions about who to kill, what to kill, what the strategy is, suddenly war might look completely different and we don't know what it's going to look like. And that, more than anything else, might give us pause for thought and make us think very hard about what we do with the development of these systems. Because obviously it has a potential to transform so many areas of human life. And I'm not anti-technology, I think technology is a force that moves forward but we must work out as with the internet and communications we haven't even worked out how to digest the last technology yet we need to think about how to digest ai and what that means for human society because we really 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 haven't thought about that we're all trying to work that out i mean it feels like this month alone is there's so many breakthroughs going on in ai that we are all just scrambling yeah. you scrambling for got chat gpt have you got the $20 a month thing. Buddy, Dan Snow is currently on the beach. You're looking at a, uh, a fake Dan oh, with a fake Dan? voice. Yeah, this is... You see, this interview is of a higher quality than usual, therefore Dan is not <laughs> conducting it. I know. I thought that, actually. I noticed that. Uh, no, I am not paying my 20 bucks. No, is it, are, you, are you doing that? Are you testing it all out? Yeah, because it's pedestrian, but there's some surprising insights. So... What do you do? You Google yourself, right? When you get a new technology. So I thought, well, let's see what it comes up with. There were some factual inaccuracies about where I'd been a fellow or which book I'd written or whatever. But like, you know, broadly, the kind of CV was fine. And then it said some quite interesting stuff about my research areas, right? And my thinking about war. And it said I was a sort of proponent of moral war. I was a just war theorist and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not. I'm none of those things. But... I do talk about war in quite a moral, human way. The thread for me is about humanity and psychology running through war, and it's an outgrowth of human society. It's something that I don't think we'll ever get rid of. It's the human phenomenon, if you like. And what I thought was its summary of my research interests were not just a simple Google. It had watched all my videos, read my books, all the rest of it, and it had synthesised what it felt were my research interests. And it got them wrong. I'm not a just war theorist, but actually it had come up with something very interesting in that it had recognised that I speak about war in a very moral human way. And that for me was very, very, very insightful. I have absolutely no interest in checking what a in- incredibly advanced intelligent form tells me about my own career. Like, I don't want to know. What I don't... do people say about Dan? No, 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 no. Not, not going there. <laughs> and I would appreciate you not looking. <laughs> Cancel that subscription. Mike, that was a galloping tour through over 100 years of war. Last question. You've been on the battlefield yourself. You're watching very closely what's going on in Ukraine. Are there enduring aspects that you recognise in the kind of warfare that we're looking at in Ukraine? Yes. Everything I see in Ukraine is entirely within the canon of warfare as we understand it. It is entirely a psychological battle. Look at the Ukrainian counteroffensive that started and will be going on over the next few months. That is a psychological battle to outwit and overload the Russian decision-making to cause them to collapse. Watch, it's going to happen over the next few weeks. And that is entirely in keeping with warfare going back for millennia. Mike Mar, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Tell everyone what your brilliant new book is called. Oh, it's called How to Fight a War and it is literally that it's basically Machiavelli for the 21st century it speaks to the commander-in-chief you the reader of the commander-in-chief it advises you on how to form your strategy sort out your morale get your logistics going 
it advises you how to fight a war. But Mike, what if Putin's henchmen read it? What if it falls into the wrong hands? The problem with Putin is not that there isn't good advice within the Russian government structures, is that he doesn't listen to any of it, which is, by the way, one of the pitfalls that I talk about in the strategy chapter. Thank you, Mike, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.